Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. Today I'm talking to Jamie Walker. Jamie is head of English at St. Nicholas's International School in Sao Paulo. We discuss the best text he's ever read, studied or taught, an introduction to his career to date and current position in Sao Paulo, the role of inquiry learning at St. Nicholas's, his approach to balancing canonised writers with new or local voices, the specific challenges Jamie's students face in English, how technology plays a part in delivering the English curriculum at his school, and finally, recommendations for resources English teachers may find useful. Thanks a lot to Jamie for taking the time to talk with me, as well as working around the enormous time difference between him and Hong Kong. If you haven't already, please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jamie, um, just to get started with then, what's the best text? that you've ever read, studied, or taught, and why? Um, read, um, let's, yeah, if we start with read, I think to me, I'm, I'm a massive lover of um, this German-Romanian woman, um, Herta Muller. She won the Nobel Prize in 2009. Um, she writes about these like, really, really interesting situations that take place kind of in kind of what was then Ceausescu's Romania. Um, and, you know, she's looking at the way that kind of totalitarianism works and kind of her writing, it's, it's almost poetic. I taught, I taught it, I taught one of her novels, The Land of Green Plums, in my IB class two years ago. And the kids were like, what, what, what's going on? Um, because I think... You know, it's it deals with that particular novel deals with like refugee experiences, and um, I think one of the things that was really interesting um, was that these kids had never really conceptualised that kind of those experiences could come from white people. They couldn't, yeah. they they couldn't understand that they came from um, a, a European context because obviously yeah. the news and the the stories that are told about kind of totalitarianism and refugees are very much um, stories told by kind of developed countries about the global south. And so that was a really, really, really interesting thing for them to, to explore. Um, as someone that's been kind of living in Brazil now for five years, um, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a bad Portuguese student. Um, when it comes to literature, I still read it in translation. Um, I think it's that it's that English thing, like because I I do books for a job and talk talk about books and kind of teach them. The slow pace is a really difficult thing for me. So, um, but I really really love the work of uh, José Saramago, Portuguese writer, um, particularly um, a novel. Um, kind of pertinent to our times, actually. Um, blindness. Um, yeah. When he, you know, it's a, it's a novel that looks at um, a pandemic that takes place in kind of a nameless country and how kind of humanity kind of responds and ultimately survives through that. Um, as for teaching, um, pand- <laughs> pandemics are an interesting way to, to look at teaching. 
um, yeah, been working with my my diploma literature class um, on waiting for Godot recently. Um, mm. It's something. It's something that I've taught plenty of times over the last ten years. Probably taught it first, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. I was working at Richmond in, in London, and you know we went to see a performance of it then. And what was really interesting then was that the kids that I was teaching then, they didn't really get it until we went to see it. And obviously that's off the table nowadays um, because of COVID and mm. all those sorts of things. But the unlike those kids kind of in 2012, 2013, um, the group that I'm working with currently just got it straight away. I think it was really interesting to see um, the way in which kind of what Beckett is writing about there and kind of nothing happening, kind of circular inertia really related to kind of their and all of our kind of experiences of of lockdown, so online school, the same day, like kind of. So that was, it was a really interesting moment to, to look at that as well. And with the Muller, um, because of the, the way the new language and literature course is organised. Uh, we actually studied it in relation to, um, I don't know if you've seen the HBO series Chernobyl, um, mm. four-part four part miniseries. Um, and we were looking and you know, this is prior to kind of Joe Biden's kind of um, winning of the election. It was about 2019, I think. So obviously totalitarianism and kind of oppressive governments were very much in the news at the time. And, you know, looking at kind of the TV series and the and the novel in conjunction with one another was really interesting for the kids, uh, really interesting for me as well, uh, particularly because, you know, it's not necessarily something that I had much experience of doing before the new version of the, the current IB course came in, it was only a couple of years ago, um, this idea of pairing kind of bodies of work, um, so non-fiction kind of um, with literary work. Yeah. Mm. There's been some really, really fun things I've taught over the, over the past few years. When... Uh, uh, when sorry, sorry, Jamie. When when you um, I think you mentioned just there, it's a Langlit um DP class you've got. When when you went with Beckett, um, I always feel like the weight of I don't know what the right word is here, responsibility or kind of the weight of expectation. Where because you've only got four texts to choose from, you know, with SL and maybe six if you're doing HL. Um, do you do another drama text alongside the Beckett, or is that just the only? The only one that you do? Um, so the Beckett, I've actually, I've not done it with my Langlet classes. I've done it with okay. my lit classes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We go 10 and 13. Um, so when I've done Beckett, um, so the last, like, so I had, I've got a literature class currently, and then I had another literature class a couple of years ago. Um, we, we tend to have one lit group in our school. And we rotate it between uh, different teachers so that, you know, not everyone kind of, everyone gets an opportunity to teach that wants to. Mm. Um, so the last time I did it alongside um, Top Girls 
by Carol ah, Church, yeah. okay. um, blasted by Sarah Kane, um, and then something much more traditional in A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm. Whereas this time we've looked at it alongside um, Sophocles, Sophocles' Electra, but we looked at a modern translation of it. Um, and then we're also going to look at Top Girls again, and we'll probably look at Blasted again. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think both Top Girls and Blasted make for interesting parallels with it because both kind of Churchill and Kane are very much people that kind of used Beckett as a reference point that kind mm. of his way of kind of approaching staging and whatnot. Uh, I think Top Girls is like a much more kind of. I can imagine like it's the more sort of conservative choice. If you were going with only four texts, if you only had four literature texts, it's, I was quite impressed then for a second. I was like, wow, he's gone for Beckett in terms of you're hanging all your kind of hopes on that one. Um, I'd be, I think I'd be too intimidated to do it in like an SL um, Langley course. But um, I didn't know that actually that Carol Churchill was um, significantly influenced by Beckett. That's quite interesting. Um, to know and that's quite an eclectic choice actually I do love um, that question most of all when it comes to like speaking to other English teachers because you never know um, it's never kind of the old it's never like a hackneyed choice that you get it's always kind of something new that you heard I've never heard of the um, what did you say Romanian German author yeah um, Muller. Uh, yeah I, I, I ended up discovering her completely by chance. I was in a yeah. uh, bookstore in an airport in South Africa a few years ago. And, yeah, flicking I'll have to look into that. Thing. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah, I like that question. Um, it's, a, it's a good interview question because, you know, yeah. um, you know, I, I wheel it out when I've kind of interviewed people who come in into our school. Like, you know, because obviously there are canonical answers that you can give yeah yeah do that and you know I, i'm sure like there are literary merits to all sorts of things but i do kind of like the idea that someone brings themselves to the table you know just yeah bring i agree the same things that can be taught anywhere in the world yeah yeah there's always that you kind of run the risk of um do you go with the answer that you know they're like, but they've probably heard 50 times before? Or do you say something that's slightly kind of left field? But yeah, that's um that's an interesting thing to consider. Um you met you mentioned it previously in terms of like Richmond in London, but for anyone who's working back in the UK and uh, considering a move abroad, um, can you just give us like a brief introduction to like your career to date and what your current position in Sao Paulo is? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I always feel like a bit of a fraud talking about these things because um, you know, I was one of those people that was told, oh, you should go into teaching, you should go into teaching, kind of like when I was a, when I was a teenager, 16, 17. I think when you're told that, you kind of rebel against it. Uh. Um, so, you know, I, I left university in 2010, uh, 21, and you know, I was very fortunate to go straight into a teaching job at uh, Worthing College in, in Worthing, the south coast of England, in 2010. Um, so with FE, there is a, there's a fairly standard kind of rule, or at least there was 11 years ago, where if you're unqualified, you can go in as long as you're working towards a qualification. 
And I think it's it's there by design for kind of vocational education that you know if you need to hire kind of plumbing teachers and kind of electricians and such forth, it's a fairly unfair expectation to expect that someone would have done a teacher training qualification whilst kind of working on site. Mm. And so I went there. Um, I did two years there. Uh, and you know, by 2012, I I'd kind of ticked the cliche of oh yeah, two years in the job, leaving forever. Mm-hmm. And you know, it wasn't somewhere that I particularly enjoyed uh, for a lot of different reasons. I think part and, part and parcel, uh, I needed to to get out of what was my hometown. Um, and so you know, 2012, moved to London. And you know, I was actually sleeping on my mate's on my mate's sofa, like looking around for for jobs and stuff. The glamorous side of teaching the mm. kind of kids see when you first start out. Um, and you know, I ended up going to to Richmond initially on a kind of a temp basis, and that got rolled over into kind of a full time contract. And I've really you know for sticking and teaching for. This amount of time, I've really got to thank both um, Christine Perkins, who's long since retired, and um, Gareth Watts, who um, will probably see this via Twitter, um, who are my line managers in the English department there. Um, they were just really, really good at the kind of like, okay, no, you've got this, like, you know, we believe in you. Like, made sure that alongside the, the academic training that you need, the kind of my skill set was being kind of supplemented by giving me different classes. So, you know, I was there until 2015. Um, and then I took a very left field choice. Um, but I knew I wanted to get out of London and get out of the UK. Uh, I think, you know, for me, it always felt a little bit safe. Um, I could kind of just... I could see the way that my life was going and, you know, kind of reach, I think everyone that's gone international reaches that juncture, like, well, if I carry on doing this, then this is the path that Mm -hmm. is laid out to me. And there wasn't anything wrong with that path. I just felt like life would be a little bit incomplete if I didn't explore other things. So... Yeah, I made the decision and I made it quite late in hindsight. Uh, I think one of the things that you don't realise when you're not in international teaching is when the hiring cycles work. That's true. It wasn't wasn't until March that I'd actually even looked at jobs and was just kind of on on lunch breaks looking through TES. And um, I ended up uh, being offered a being offered a job in Zambia, in Lusaka, which is about as different um, a culture and society as you can get from London as possible. So moving from somewhere kind of very highly urbanised, very developed, kind of lots, of lots of amenities, lots of public transport to a very relative, although it's the capital, very relatively small city of just a million people. Um, and doing it myself, you know, I worked out that, you know, it wasn't the right environment for me. It was a little bit too, it was a little bit too isolated. 
a little bit too rural. Um, I actually, um, <laughs> you know, whilst I was there, I planned on teaching or learning to drive. Um, so before I left Richmond, I bought a secondhand, bought the worst car to drive on kind of Central African roads. I bought a Rover 75 off of um, a former colleague of mine. Um, so I was going to have this kind of romantic vision in my head of drive this arca like Inspector Morse. Um, <laughs> uh, kind of arrived. Um, it got um, stuck in um, got stuck in a port in Namibia, and obviously where I don't have a driving license, I can't go and get it. Um, because even if I fly out from Zambia to Namibia to go and get it, I can't drive it back across the continent because I'm not driving yeah. myself. So you know, I made some pretty bad decisions whilst I was there. Um, and then, you know, it was it was really nice though that, you know, I had again two line managers who were kind of much more experienced internationally and quite sympathetic. So both um Wayne Johnson, who's now um in Belgium, and I think Martin van der Linden, uh, who I think has moved into consultancy nowadays, were really good at kind of sitting down and talking to us. Um, and so, yeah, 2000, like, so I started there in July 2015. By the beginning of 2016, I'd accepted a job to, to come to Sao Paulo. Um, and I think one of the things that I learned about myself along the way is, uh, you know, by being in an environment where I felt very kind of isolated, it gave me a really strong crash course on the sorts of things I wanted. Um, and so, you know, obviously um, everyone has their romanticized image of the sort of, you close your eyes and you see a beach. Mm. That's, that's what everyone knows about Brazil. There's a beach and there's a jungle and there's some other stuff. Um, <laughs> And Sao Paulo is not like that. It's the largest city in the in the southern hemisphere is plus twenty million people plus. And mm. you know, as much as it was a different culture, different language, different environment, it had enough familiar about it as someone that had lived in London previously. Like, you know, so it was, I guess. Yeah, you come back to the, the sense of the uncanny. The uncanny. It's familiar yet unfamiliar. And so I've been here since 2016, and head of department since the end of 2018. I think. Mm. I'm I'm sort of leaping ahead to um one of the later questions. But how does coming back to something you just said a moment ago? How does Sao Paulo compare with London then in terms of they're obviously both very large metropolitan kind of areas lots and lots of of people but how does your work-life balance how does the cultures compare in terms of sao paulo and london um i think you know pandemic has put a pause on all the Mm. good things about a lot of places around the world um but pre pre pre-pandemic sao paulo and london have got a lot in common um Good restaurant scene, good kind of nightlife, like kind of lots of art and culture. It's very unlike London. Sao Paulo is like the least touristy city you will ever go to. Mm. Um, um, It's got about three tourist attractions, and that's about it. It's really not a place to to spend the weekend. 
Um, it's, you know, I'm going to reference Shrek, unfortunately. You know, they say like onion, he says that onions have layers. So I was a bit like that onion. But, you know, it's not very attractive on the outset, but you peel away the layers and you start to uncover kind of the art, the culture, and the, the sense of community. And I think for me as well, the, you know, the sporting environment has been great. So, you know, prior to the pandemic, I was also playing playing rugby alongside uh, alongside working, which was something I was doing in London. Um, and what's amazing as well is that through the city, you've got this forty kilometer bike track that just runs all the way along this river. And mm. you know, it's not difficult to get out of the town. It's not difficult to kind of drive to a beach, drive away. It's um, so. A lot in common. I think the I think the difference has really come from the, the working environment. I think you know, as you know, um, I think one of the things that a lot of people actually kind of do with uh, comparing the UK to abroad is that you forget that you, you're moving quite often from a public service into a private one. Yeah. And so the. The school I work for is really, really nice. It's a family-run, family-run operation. It's got kind of family culture and values. Um, whereas, you know, when you're working in a, in a government school college, you know, you've got your offsteads and you've got your inspections and you've got kind of these things that kind of run in the background. And, you know, I remember, I remember the last time we had an offsted inspection when I was at Richmond. Like, there was a, a pandemonium in the, in the office. Like people were like, oh, no, we've got to stay here all night and make sure everything's perfect. Mm. I think once you step outside of that environment, you realise how artificial it is. The, it's a very unfair expectation to tell a group of people, no, don't, don't sleep, don't, because everything needs to look like perfect on appearance. And it's, it's not a very fair way to, to think about education, right? No. Do we do we teach kids because of a government body, or do we teach kids because kids need kind of learn like education? And we do the best for the kids. And so, yeah, um, yeah. Mm. Um, in terms of coming back to like the kids and how they learn and that kind of thing, I think another departure from um, the 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 UK or at least kind of A levels and the national curriculum and stuff would be the fact that doing the IB, there's a big focus on uh, like inquiry-based learning. And I'm always interested to see like to what extent or how that translates into different IB schools around the world. I think some schools give it lip service. Some are, are genuinely kind of completely um, on board with it. So how does it um, sort of manifest itself in, in your department, more specifically in your school? I think we're in a really, really nice, nice place at the moment with inquiry. So um, when I took the, the job to, to be the head of English, uh, my boss, Nick, had said to me that one of the things that we want you to do is to bring in um, a clearer curriculum using understanding by design. Mm-hmm. And so over the last three, three and a half years, what we've been doing is sitting down 
reviewing things and bringing everything under a kind of a conceptual conceptual framework. So, you know, if you start with your your enduring understandings, your transfer goals, and kind of your essential questions, then you end up building inquiry and kind of almost by default. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a, a slog at first because you know changing the way organizations organize themselves difficult so i mean case in point first first year first year we had um you know we're looking at fairly standard canonical year nine texts like arthur miller plays and kind of of might and men and you know they were there on a, on a curriculum and there was no real connection between them and so you look and you sit down as a department you try and kind of make them make them kind of come together through kind of like these overriding concepts. And so we looked at this idea of injustice as this framework. And, you know, after a year of looking at those two texts, we end up subbing one out and replacing it with something like, uh, so one of my colleagues um, plumbed for The Hate You Give. It's a very different, very young adult, much more contemporary, um, but the, the same overriding concepts. Um, so that's been a really interesting way to move towards inquiry. I think as well, one of the major things that kind of makes inquiry-based learning much more kind of much more fertile is the way that you organize space. And you know, I've been super, super lucky. Um, I took the job. Uh, I had a meeting with the owner of the school and we're walking around, walking around the English department. And our, our English department is in these old houses that have been kind of repurposed into, into school rooms. And I was walking around with him and I said, Look, do you mind if like and I knocked on a wall and it was stud wall, it was like, can we knock the walls down? This, this is how it all started. And you know, from that we take these kind of very distinct, dark kind of rooms that were never really designed to be classrooms open them up and turn them into kind of this big kind of open multifunctional space so the walls have been replaced with like slightly glass doors and you know what it means is that you can move the kids around it's like you stop kind of you stop with this idea of the rows like Foucault's prison and instead, kind of, you create an environment where they're comfortable. When they're comfortable, you can start asking kind of more interesting questions. Um, I think one of the other things that we've been really trying to do is to re-signify this idea of these two really important concepts of, of trust and of failure. So if you're going to ask people big questions, then give them space to work out their own answers to them. I think one of the things that, you know, uh, I think it was one of your previous guests on the show um, was saying, so the elephant in the room is the exam, exam system. And it's right because, you know, if you want to ask people big questions and kind of come to their own decisions, then a one-size-fits-all one exam system doesn't suit doesn't suit the purpose. Um, and if you're going to let people kind of, I think this is it, like, p- 
people, not students. If you want people to reach interesting outcomes, you need to give them space to to find them and to trust them. And kind of your role then as a teacher is very much guide on the side. Mm. The, it's, it's collaborative knowledge construction. It's not kind of, you know, come into a lecture with me. You're coming to kind of develop your own ideas and, and whatnot. And so, you know, it, it filters all the way through. Uh, one of the really useful things has been kind of employing um, this is something I picked up from, from university, the, um, the solo taxonomy, that you move, so your knowledge construction moves through these layers to extended abstracts. So can you connect your learning to learning that's taken place in other environments and kind of your previous experiences, as opposed to just like grading kind of 10 out of 10. Mm. Engaging with the person as well. Like, you know, I think it's a little bit, coming back to English teacher specific, one of the things that you taught uh, or becomes an expectation, I think a few years ago, was this idea that you'll correct everyone's spelling. It's like, you know, who in the real world is going around correcting people's spelling? When was the last time someone looked at your work and said, well, actually, no, you used a Z, you should have used an S. And there there are various programs that will do that for you now. engage with the kids on an ideological basis. So here's your idea. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And kind of, you're constantly kind of nudging the, nudging Alice further down the rabbit hole. I think I would say that, you know, you want people to reach their own conclusions. And really to do that, we need to, we need to normalize failure. You know, so um, most recently, last thing that um, mine and my teaching partners, grade six class did, was uh, they've been studying uh, the boy who harnessed the wind um, Mm. for a kind of very interdisciplinary unit all about kind of the world around them. And they had to make windmills out of stuff they could find at home. And, you know... That's obviously what um, the protagonist, William Kankwamba, does in his book. And obviously there's a, a lot of good that comes out of that as a response. But when we're putting together the assessment criteria, we said, no, we want you to show us when you messed up, when you failed. And I think if we normalise failure, we make it an important, an important iterative part of the process. That if people think that me failing is good, then I am more prepared to fail. And, you know, having a little bit of, you know, school's supposed to be a safe place to de- do these sorts of things as opposed to kind of promoting perfection mm. from an early age. And then kind of, you know, you see it quite often that, you know, you have people that will score very, very highly on tests and scores and exams or whatever without really having to push themselves and, you know, once they reach a certain level, they don't know how to deal with the failure because they've always been successful within a yeah. particular framework. So if you give people little tastes of failure and you encourage that and you say, oh, you made a mistake, but you learned from it. This is a good thing. And, you know, iterative feedback, I think, is a really, really big one mm. for me. 
I think the um the the thing you mentioned earlier about the fact that at the start of a unit asking them to consider or think about or anticipate like when they're going to fail or when they're going to have issues, how to plan for it and how to reflect on it is surely one of the most integral parts of that inquiry based um approach. Like if you're gonna set goals with the students and you decide on what the final product is, it it also only makes sense to discuss with them what's going to go wrong in the process of reaching that final product. So um yeah, that's that's a really interesting, that's fascinating by the way, that that kind of idea of um being able to tailor the the environment to the to the needs of the students. I think if I was a student at that school, I'd see that, you know, the staff are obviously invested in making sure that um, my experience was as kind of uh, optimized as it could possibly um, possibly be. Like, how could you not be more and more motivated um, when it when it comes to like designing the curriculum specifically to English? I think there's that thing in IB where I mean, you know, you mentioned Carol Churchill, Beckett, Sophocles. Um, what about? Uh, to what extent do you feel the difficulty? I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Saramago before, who's obviously Portuguese speaker, like being from Portugal. Um, but do you feel, is there any, is there many opportunities to get Brazilian writers or South American writers into the, the curriculum? And how do you find that the challenge of getting a balance between canonized writers, new voices, Brazilian voices? What, what's been your experience with that? It's a really interesting question um, and is definitely one that comes with um, a lot of challenges, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, a lot of the challenges come down to, you know, we're in Brazil and we're a, we're a school that runs five, six different languages, depending on which kids are in. So we always have English, Portuguese, Spanish, Japanese, Korean, sometimes Hebrew, sometimes French. And this is quite a small school. I think one of our kind of really unique selling points at Synex is that, you know, regard, like we really respect people's native language, their home language. And, you know, it's important that, you know, that is an important part of your learning in a school like Synex. Um, and so with Portuguese being kind of the native language here, um, the Portuguese department have the kind of by and large the monopoly on, uh, yeah. on the Portuguese language texts. And yeah. we have an agreement that each language has, you know, and this is between the teachers, we have like first dips. And so if it was yeah. originally written in English, um, um, then the English department gets it and, uh, and so forth and so forth. Um, and so it's, I think, what we kind of see our, and because as well, the, the Portuguese curriculum is dictated by kind of local government as well. There are kind of standards that the Portuguese department needs to, to meet in certain texts, which is a different type of canon in and of itself. I think what we tend to do is we try and take a more global approach. Um, we tend to, and, you know, one of the ways we do that is by, you know, we have, again, conceptual units rather than text-based units. So, um, 
I've just been talking to a couple of my colleagues who are going to be teaching the language and literature next year. And they want to run a, a unit all about dystopias. And obviously, kind of, I think one of the things that you do, particularly as an English teacher, is that whenever you're reading, you're always reading with half an eye on would this work in class. Mm. Um, it's one of it's one of the it's one of the downsides to the to the job that you never just read. It's always reading with kind of one. Um, but by structuring it like that, they can go to. You, know, you can go to Russia with um, someone like Yevgeny Zamyatin, where you go to, uh, I think there's, the, there's a modern Japanese novel, the, the Memory Police, I think they want to do, where you go kind of 1984. And again, you build in kind of, you know, if you teach the kid the concepts of dystopian fiction, it doesn't matter what they're reading. So you give your, you give your, your students who are looking at going off to university kind of more complex texts and kind of you give them the, the PRL as a form of canon as well. Can you learn to find your own things within this? And again, it, that comes back to trust. And then it gives you, it gives you your weaker readers, your kind of your students who, you know, yeah, they're, they're bilingual, but like myself probably don't choose to read in the second language, the opportunity for something that's a bit more differentiated and a bit more appropriate to where, to where they're doing. I think there's a, there's sometimes a little bit of a little bit of intellectual snobbery that surrounds kind of course designs and constructions. I think one of the things about the new language and literature course in particular is that it's kind of designed to take away that snobbery, that you can watch something like the most popular season on Netflix and you can connect it to your poetry, your drama, and because you've got the, these global issues at the centre, you know, we're not, most people are not watching things that have no issues in them because, you know, we want things that are a reflection of our experiences in our world. So you go for that. Um, but yeah, to, to come back to the, the Brazil thing, we're quite, we're quite lucky as well that um, two of my colleagues are really into graphic novels. And I think one of the things that's happened globally over the last couple of years, is that you know there are trends that run through the the IB diploma, and I think there are trends that run through um, the ways in which kind of texts are chosen. And you know, previously, kind of everyone would have taught *Street Island Desire* and *Great Gatsby*. The current darling of people's kind of IB courses from you know, from what I see from my teachers' forums and whatnot, is Persepolis. Everyone wants to teach Persepolis. And, you know, good text, really good fun. There's a lot of really interesting things you can do with it. But there are other analogous graphic novels that you could use. Um, and kind of two of my colleagues are really into them. And so they've proposed this, this graphic novel called Day Tripper, which is all about um, all about life in the northeast of Brazil. Very, very different culturally um, from, from Sao Paulo, um, but was originally written in English. So I think for this next group of kids coming through, we're going to have the first year where actually we're going we're gonna to explore Brazilian culture in mm. kind of a very explicit way, but through the English language medium, which 
is really, really interesting. Yeah, that's um, awesome. You know, for a moment, on a small, small scale, I had um, a student this year who wanted to do their extended essay in English, but they wanted to look at um, Captains in the Sands by Georges Amado, which is like one of the most kind of canonical Brazilian literary texts, um, which he wanted to do in English. And, you know, it's set up in the, the northeast of Brazil, uh, which is very kind of basically like the stronghold of Afro-Brazilian culture. And so she ended up comparing it to um, a novel by Chimamanda Radici, Purple Hibiscus. So mm. she's looking at the, the conceptualization of family in these two novels. And so, yeah, it's going to be the first time we've done it on a, a broader scale, but I've seen what can happen on a, on a small scale through like an extended essay where kind of you let people explore a culture through a language. Um, so I think it's going to go gonna go pretty well. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, in terms of the... Um, it, it sounds actually like your students are pretty, or at least the, the ones you mentioned are like pretty ambitious or, or quite, um, you know, uh, outgoing in terms of their, their choices and the way they approach school and stuff. But in terms of challenges that they face that you've noticed that are slightly unique when compared with your time in Africa or in your time in the UK, what do they tend to struggle with um, the most in class? And do you have like any particular approaches to, to combat this? Um, I think one of the, the major I, th- I think there's two things there. So I kind of touched upon this earlier. The, you know, the the snobbery thing comes back. That, you know, as much as we do lots of creative, exciting things in our department, very few of our of our students are going off to study kind of the humanities or literature mm. at, at university. Um, the vast majority of our kids are off to do. Um, sciences, medicine, engineering, um, a lot going to business schools. Um, and, you know, I think there's, um, they don't always need to have the most canonical or iconic of texts. And you don't need to make things kind of overly literary. I think, you know, for those, for those students who are going to go and do that at university, they're going to get that at university. And, a school experience doesn't need to be and shouldn't be the university experience. And I think kind of recognising that, you know, some kids need differentiated texts is, is really, really important. Um, I think as well as that, the, the language is, a, is definitely a thing. So with our, with our English curriculum, we don't have an explicit um, EAL section so um our course is actually called like immersion in english if you look it up on the the government's website and you know if you're if you're a kid who's come in from south africa if you're a kid that's come from japan from korea um, or a kid that's come from a local school in brazil you go into mainstream english classes uh, and you know we do very well with it by the time our students leave to the next, they're all getting bilingual diplomas. So what we're doing is, is clearly working. Um, but it, 
it's a case of you know recognizing that are we are we teaching these people to be English speakers like you or I, people who grew up in the UK and therefore it's our native language, or are we teaching them sufficient global English that they can go and be successful wherever they want to be in the world? And I think the latter is what we're aiming for. Um, so I always find it a bit weird when you know people are kind of doing pronunciation classes, like, oh, you're not saying it the right way. Well, there are many ways that you can say this. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you spell it with a Z or an S. Um, it doesn't really consist. And so, again, I think that comes back to the the inquiry and kind of the way that you frame your frame your lessons and your learning. So you know, come back to the the window. Uh, I've got a, a young Japanese boy in that class who's only just come from Japan. And has actually spent the majority of the past year in Japan because of the pandemic. And so he's been doing a lot of school remotely. Uh, I've seen him in, in the building a few times, but not very many. And clearly his home language is Japanese, his family is Japanese. And you know, in Brazil, if he'd been here playing football with his mates, he would have picked up some English in, in school and whatnot. Um, but can if you frame your your curriculum conceptually, you can you can see what what people can understand and what they can learn. So was he able to be successful in this project? Yes. Was all of his research done in English? No, but does it need to be? Um, you know, I think we sometimes I think we overly prioritize one language over another. I mean I've you know one of the things that kind of I've noticed over the five years that I've been here is that we've very much moved from a kind of an Anglo, an Anglo-centric kind of language culture in the school to kind of a very multi, multilingual one that all languages are accepted and there to be appreciated. Yeah. But, you know, um, and you can kind of support that by really focusing on the person first. That you know, language fluency is not the same as a test of someone's intelligence. And I think, again, I think that's one of the things that when you step out of your kind of native language environment, I remember being here, you know, I went to my first, I went to my first rugby training session here five, six years ago. And I'm doing drills that I've done my entire life. And I don't know the difference between the word left and right. And I keep going the wrong way. And obviously, I know how to play. I know what I'm doing, but I don't know the language. And I think there's a. It's important to be humbled in that process, mm-hmm. in order to recognise that you know everyone is on this, on this process and on this journey. And if you really focus on the person first, you can kind of find the thing that find the thing that connects. So you know, my partner at the moment, she's she's literally just finished. Uh, teaching a, a private lesson uh, with a, a young kid who, who is based here in Brazil as well. And, you know, um, her entire approach is, well, what really interests you? Let's work that out. And through spending time kind of online with this, with this particular kid, she's discovered that he's really into the Vikings. 
And once you once you access that information, like you know, you can frame your learning around anything, particularly as you you're moving towards kind of developing a language. And it's just much more, it's just much friendlier, isn't it? You're always going to be more likely to learn something in an environment where kind of people care about you. And so yeah, pedagogy of care, uh, I think is massive. So mm. yeah. I think um, in terms of it always reminds me whenever you have these kind of conversations about like when and how we use English like if you if you if you're working in a staff room which is filled with sort of people from across across the world whether in my case it's like Hong Kong or China and Australia South Africa America France whatever it's the way that people communicate with one another is is a fascinating thing to watch like they'll drop in and out of let's say mandarin and english and then they'll move into cantonese and you've only got to walk from one end of the staff room to the other to witness how it, it's a completely different kind of exchange which is going on so um that's it's, yeah certainly strikes a chord with me in terms of the you know the japanese student in terms of doing some of his work in his his native language because he needs to and then transferring it into the kind of the target language it's yeah it, it makes a lot of sense from like a, an adult's perspective so it's strange why we don't apply that more from um on on the student level i think um with regards to sort of uh, i think this is like a hot topic nowadays with it being like covid-19 and and distance learning and online zooming and google meeting and that kind of thing um, but how much technology do you guys deliver within the English curriculum at the minute, um, both as a result of COVID or even like um, um, what are you planning to implement once you do have everyone back in the classroom and uh, present and uh, in attendance? If you'd have asked me this question a couple of months ago, you'd have got a completely different answer. Mm. Um, and, you know, I really have to thank um, uh, two people for that. Um, so my pandemic has really been been framed by kind of both being a teacher and being a student again. Um, so I'm halfway through um, a master's in education leadership at the um, at TAMC, the Tampering, which I'm probably butchering in terms of pronunciation, <laughs> University of Applied Sciences. And so I've just come off the back of a, a module on technology enhanced learning run by um, Marco Terras and Mark Kircher. And I've really got to thank them because, you know, I think one of the things that I saw going into the pandemic was very much a case of people's, people's knowledge of teaching was really thrown into question. Mm. The, you know, you are being asked to do something, but you've been asked to do it under a medium that has, for the most part, not really been, not really been done before, uh, you mm -hmm. know. And from what from what I saw and kind of reflecting what I saw in my own practice as well was, I think in the early days of the pandemic, there became like this sense of like hyper hyper vigilance, the you know. Zoom meetings and Google Meets became like this panopticon where if a kid mm. didn't, have their, mm. didn't have their camera on, they were automatically like off playing football. Or, you know, and it became the sense of, you know, I'm going to spend two hours online. It's like, 
And it's exhausting. <laughs> and it's exhausting because it's not the right thing to do. And it takes it takes a critical eye to, to look back at that. And so the reason I thank Mark and Marco um, is because, you know, this course on technology and hard learning was very, was very much a case of to what extent is technology enhancing the learning. And then I think, you know, there's, there's myriad kind of people that are offering ed tech solutions um, out there in kind of, you know, you go on LinkedIn, you'll get messages of, like, oh, do you want to sign up for this program? Or this will make your life easier. And that actually doesn't make my life easier. What's happening? What's happening to the kids' data as a result? Is it making my teaching better? Or is it just making kind of life a little bit shorter? And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not some sort of, not some sort of technological Luddite, um, you know, we were quite lucky in the beginning of the pandemic that, you know, because our classrooms don't have any fronts or sides, you know, we've been using Google, Google Classroom for, for years now as a learning management system. So, you know, the activities and the instructions would always be posted on there before they'd be posted on a, on a whiteboard or whatever. So we were lucky in that regard. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it's really a case of just approaching things with a, with that question in mind, like, is this really what's best for the kids or is this a shortcut? Um, and there are, there are certain platforms that I found that are really, really good right now. Um, so one of the things that I've really enjoyed using is, uh, a platform called Miro. Um, and what I like about it is that you know, it's, it's essentially a mind mapping tool, but um, it's a collaborative mind mapping tool. And what has um, a school environment kind of lost as a result of the loss of the physical, it's kind of close quarters collaboration. And so kind of in a, in a Miro board, you can spend your time kind of organizing yourself so that Kind of, you can include multimedia and you can collaborate and stuff. And, you know, my colleague Dan and I recently kind of helped a group of kids put together a, an equivalent, like an online version of um, the, the school's inter-house festival. So normally in non-pandemic times, we spend the last three days as a big community coming together, playing sports, uh, residential trip. Obviously that's completely off the cards right now. So bringing them together through kind of this collaborative board was a really interesting way for them to like kind of scaffold knowledge as a community. And I think that's one of the things that had been lost over time. Um, been using it in theory of knowledge, TOK as well. So I think one of the things that I've come to come to the conclusion of is I don't particularly like Google Slides as, a, as an architecture of learning because it suggests that you can only move to two after you've done one. Mm. And actually, like, we don't learn like that. We don't go one, two, it's not like playing hopscotch. You, know, you move around and you want to come back and you want to kind of move things around and connect as you go. So there's been that. Um, another one I came across fairly recently um, 
there's a platform called Video Ant. Um, mm. So I quite like it because it's been it's been developed by kind of a university team, the University of Minnesota, and I think it's really quite nice because of what it allows you to do. That I think now we live in a world that is so global and so connected that a lot of what we do in class is, you know, it's pointing people in the right directions. Like, I want you to watch this video and I want you to watch this video because, and it's, you know, it's going to be a lecture, it's going to be a short introduction or a TED talk or whatever. But what we don't necessarily do when we give that activity out is capture what comes back. And so what I like about video ant is it allows kind of your class to say, you can assign a a video via it into your your classroom and kids can annotate it and you can reply to those annotations and kind of you build up a a conversation. Um, So that's one of the things that I've, I've really, really enjoyed using. That'd be like particularly useful for, like you were mentioning before, like the Langlet body of work stuff. If you are doing a, uh, I'm not sure about the compatibility with Netflix and, and and those other things, but if you're, even if you're just doing kind of like um, advertisements um, on like via YouTube or something like that, that's certainly something you could. And I'd say I haven't heard of either of those actually. So Miro and um video ant I'll, I'll stick like a a link to both of them in the in the show notes below um yeah i'll be checking out particularly that miro one i just i'm reading um a book at the minute and it's talking about like how to kind of record um or, or gauge understanding and that kind of thing by using slightly different methods than you know checking notes and that kind of thing and one of them was um they didn't use the term mind mapping but it basically um it, it equated to that so that sounds like something which can be done online which um, um might be a little bit more transparent to check in in the future um you've kind of given us some two or three or four really good recommendations already uh jamie but um lastly do you have any more recommendations for resources for english teachers who want to keep improving or want to move abroad or um uh, anything like that you've come across in the last few months or years um i guess a few um uh, i mean you'll have already read this because i sent some notes over to you um one of the big things for me i've really kind of fallen back on is um teachers groups on facebook i think you know facebook as a as a social network is kind of it's kind of dying um, you know, people kind of people of our age are no longer kind of as interested in Facebook as they were kind of when it first came out in kind of mm. like the late two thousands. But because we've all got accounts, the teachers groups have been really, really good um, and really nice way to to throw ideas open. Um, so it's been it's been really good for kind of for English and for theory of knowledge as well and you know seeing a confluence between those two courses has been been quite nice i think as well the you know i've you know, i kind of touched upon this earlier that my 
pandemic learning has really been kind of accelerated by kind of spending time studying for a master's alongside working full time. Mm. At times it's been it's been brutal at times. Um because the time difference is such that in order to in order to be online I've had to get up at like three, four in the morning for kind of what we usually in non-pandemic times the the weeks that you'd spend in Finland. So instead of you know instead of spending kind of weeks getting to know people and going to see the kind of the saunas in <laughs> Tampere. I've woken up in on my kind of sofa bed in my office. So a little less gra- glamorous and a little bit more kind of tiring. But just, you know, it's just been a, a crash course in kind of keeping up currency of knowledge. And I guess it's another, it's another community thing. The, you know, because I'm one of 25 people on this course, the, you know, we're, we're always bouncing ideas off of one another. And that's, that's been really nice as well. And I think, you know, comes back to the way that we use things like LinkedIn as well. But I kind of I kind of neglected LinkedIn until until I started the master's program because I realized I needed a, an account for it. Um, and that's been a really interesting crash course in kind of seeing what other people are sharing, kind of people like yourself. Yeah. You know. So yeah, I think harness the power of harness the power of community, harness the power of networks. Mm. Um, and I think if we look at an English specific thing, uh, it might sound a little bit silly, but I really like um, Goodreads. Um, yeah, websites. Yeah, yeah, because you know, kids kids come to me with re- like requests. Like, oh, what do you think I should read next, or whatever, and, you know. I think when you're when you're someone who's passionate about literature and you're someone who's passionate about teaching, then you really try and kind of find recommendations that will suit those people. But there's obviously a limit. There are blind spots in in my reading as there are in kind of everyone else's. And you know, it's an interesting way to use the power of algorithms to mm. generate kind of new avenues and new areas to explore the you know i don't think it's going to necessarily replace human recommendation but i think it's a it's a nice kind of supplement alongside yeah so, it's good that it, i think it's really good that it's user generated that that's the main thing that appeals to me and um i've yeah I, i've recommended that website on yeah untold times whenever someone's come particularly when it's someone who's you know, if, if it's, you know, a teenage girl from Hong Kong, I can't really ever claim to have kind of walked in her shoes. And like, you can make certain recommendations based off what you've seen other people read in. Um, you know, you, you read your fair share of young adult fiction and this kind of thing. But yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Good. Good reads is fantastic. The Coming back to the LinkedIn, Twitter, um, Facebook thing a moment ago, it is interesting to see the sort of, the difference between the three and how effective each one is and I don't know if it's just a personal thing I don't know if it's you know my generation might feel different from someone 10 years younger I do feel like Facebook is the the best of the three for 
I think it's just the groups um, aspect of Facebook, which particularly like the Langlit group. I know you you sent a link to that in 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 the stuff that you sent me before um, we began speaking. But I um, like I'm a member of that, and for some reason I don't know whether it's just because Twitter's like this unstoppable stream of information which is just you know coming at you some people are tweeting 50 60 times a day and 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 fair enough um but facebook just seems to be a little bit more um what you need in in a certain place and a little bit more easy to digest but like i said that could be a completely subjective like opinion but i do think that even even though like you said it's a bit of a dying platform Relatively speaking, I think there's still a lot to be said for, like you said, TOK and Langley, NYP stuff that's on there. So, yeah, always, always point like the new teachers in that direction whenever they ask for advice. Collaboration, I think, is the big one there, isn't it? That if you look at the if you look at the architecture of Twitter versus the architecture of Facebook, mm. the the Facebook groups are about harnessing a community and it's kind of bringing people into a conversation, whereas Twitter, I think there are some really interesting Twitter accounts, but it's very much having your own little stage and telling people what you're doing as opposed to bringing other people into the conversation. And and if you're you're someone who is quite humanistic in their outlook, bringing people into the conversation always feels better than kind of telling people kind of this, that or the other. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, okay, then, Jamie, the, the only thing that remains for me to say now is thank you very much for giving up your time and a little piece of your um, school holidays. Um, well earned, I'm sure, to uh, chat with me today. And um, best of luck over the summer and with the coming academic term. Thanks ever so much. Thanks for having me. It's been really enjoyable.